Well, happy Easter, Door Creek. Good to be together with you. My name is Mark, and I am suffering from a sugar headache. I don't think it has anything to do with donut holes, but maybe. <laughs> really glad that you're here, whether you're coming from out of town, in town. Um, here's what we desire to be as a church. We say this, we want to be a Christ-centered church for all people, where the power of the gospel, the good news of God's love for us in Jesus Christ continues to transform our lives, making us more like Jesus, right? to renew our city, so we want to serve our city, and change the world. So thanks for joining us this Easter. Really glad that you could be here. It's been said that the most fantastic of all the claims of Christianity has to be that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day. And for millennia, human beings have tried with all kinds of ingenuity to both defy and deny death. But only Christ has claimed to actually have conquered death. That is to defeat death in his own death and to deprive it of its power over others who would place their trust in him. And so it's that truth that we're celebrating. It's what we've gathered around. It's what we hold out. It's what we stand on this Easter weekend. Now, the fear of death is real. And for far too many people around this world, it's a daily deal, right? It's a daily fear. Not just in the far-off places like Syria and southern Sudan and war-torn areas of this world. But you think about the urban centers around the world, but you think about the urban centers in places as close as Milwaukee or Chicago. And trust me, a daily fear for people who live right here in Dane County. I don't know when you were first introduced to this fear of death, but for me, it was as a young boy in my bed at night, and I don't know how the thought came into my mind because my parents were healthy, nothing was wrong, but I started thinking about what if my parents died? What if I lost my mom and my dad? Did you ever have that as a kid? And I just started crying. I would cry myself to sleep. This happened several times. But it wasn't just that initial one I remember. I remember as a teenager... I just got out of high school. I was going to my job, and on the way, I was to stop at this funeral home where there was this visitation, this wake for my neighbor across the street. She was just a teenager, Teresa. I grew up with her, and she'd been battling depression, and she took her life. And I walked in before it was public visitation hours, and there was the family, and Mrs. Ward came up, and she gave me a big hug and thanked me for coming. And then she put her arm around me and walked me up to Teresa's casket. And I'm like, I'm 16. And, and that was, whoa. And then I remember back in 2003, when it was confirmed that my wife, Lori, has breast cancer and the doctors said she's not going to make it. And I remember lying in bed next to her, just catching up with this, this supposed reality that they were talking about, that she's not going to make it. And tears are running down my face, just like it was when I was a little kid, thinking about mom and dad. But now it's my best friend. It's my wife. It's the mother of our five kids. The fear of death is real. And from time to time, we brush up against it. From 
times in our life we go, it's just been a preoccupying thing, and you're going, thanks a lot. I thought we were coming to talk about resurrection, and you just ruined my Easter. <laughs> what do we do with it? Woody Allen uses humor. Have you heard his little quip? I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. The New York Times had this interview with Larry King, right, the television commentator. They described him as being obsessed with death. He begins the day reading the obituaries. He's always thinking about who's going to read his eulogy at his funeral. He's had a heart attack, quintuple bypass, prostate cancer, diabetes, and seven divorces. And here's, here's his move against aging. He's taking this growth hormone pill, four of them every day, and he plans on his body being frozen so that someday they'll get the cure and unfreeze him and he'll keep living. He says, quotes, it's nuts. I, I, I agree, it's nuts. But at least it gives me a shred of hope. King says other people have no hope. Well, this Easter 2017, I want to bring you more than a shred of hope. Hope that is founded not just on the eyewitness accounts of the followers of Jesus, some who were doubters, some who were flat-out enemies of Jesus, like the Apostle Paul. And I want to bring you to the Scriptures to remind us that this has been God's plan from the very beginning. In fact, John, Jesus' closest friend, writing in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 8, refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God. That is the perfect offering for sin that was offered before the creation of the world, meaning this was God's plan actually before the world began. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to focus in on the Old Testament scriptures as we kind of continue our working through the storyline. So what do I mean by the storyline? We're, we're doing a year-long study of the whole Bible from the beginning, Genesis, all the way to the last book, Revelation. We're seeing how these 66 books written by 40 authors over 1,500 years but in three different languages, how they actually hold together in this beautiful unity. And what unites all the scriptures is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that the Easter story is not just a New Testament story. It's not just a story that comes out of the first century A.D. It is rooted back in the Old Testament scriptures a thousand years before King David, we'll see, is talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection. And the reason we're going there is to strengthen our faith. So grab your Bible, 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have one, you're good. We've got it up on the screen for you. So Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, in Greece. You can go there today and visit that place where the church existed. And he writes this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. Here's the, here's the phrase. According to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is the apostle Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep, though some have died. 
Then he appeared to James, his half-brother. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. What does he mean? For I'm the least of the apostles. Don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul, his name used to be Saul. He was chasing down Christ followers all over the Middle East, into Europe, just Asia Minor, going after these people, persecuting, throwing them into jail. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that the resurrection is the cotter pin, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the of first importance. It's the central point of our faith. You've received it. You've believed it. You're standing on it. And don't you dare lose your grip on this truth or your faith will not serve you well. He tells us what happened and when. In other words, there's, there's historical evidence. There's physical evidence to the resurrection. It happened on a particular day, the third day. It was a real body. He's not talking about some kind of mystical, spiritual, metaphorical resurrection. He's talking about a real body that really died on the cross, that really was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And on the third day, Jesus didn't roll back the stone. He's out already. The angels roll it back. The earthquake rolls it back so that the followers of Christ could look in and see he is risen, as the angel said, just as he said. Paul would tell his friends in Corinth why he died, why he rose again. Why? For our sins. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That is, he's the perfect sacrifice, the Son of God who lived a perfect life, lived for 30-plus years on this earth. He was betrayed by his own. He was denied by his own. The religious leaders hated him. They trumped up the charges. Together with the religious leaders, Pilate and his minions had him impaled on a Roman cross. And when he died on the cross and uttered, it is finished, he said all the sins of the world have been paid in full as he's the perfect sacrifice, the Son of God, who died in our place. And he says, this was God's plan all along according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. What scriptures? Well, it's actually a technical term, the scriptures. It's referring to what we would call the 39 books of the Old Testament. He said, this, this happened because the Old Testament, it's not, you don't just know what happened because they're eyewitness accounts. You don't know just that it happened because Jesus said it was going to happen. But God has been saying from the very beginning, according to the scriptures, that this is what is going to happen. He's going to die. He's going to suffer. And we're going to look at that. We're going to look at that. And then he adds, oh, yeah, and there were eyewitnesses. And what he's saying here, you've got to remember that Corinthians is written sometime 15 to 20 years after the, res after the resurrection. So Jesus dies somewhere A.D. 30, 33, in that time period. So this is 48 to 50 A.D. And he's saying, look, these 500, these disciples, these apostles, Peter, myself, we're still alive. Some of them have fallen asleep. Some of them have died. But whole hundreds of us are alive. And you can go talk to them. You're a skeptic. You're a doubter. And we, it's so easy for us to go, well, we just doubt because we're enlightened. We've got, we've got such a bigger worldview. We're so much more sophisticated than people back. They were doubters back then. His own disciples doubted. Even when they saw his resurrected body, they were scratching their heads going, I don't get it. 
He says, look, you got those doubts? You're a skeptic, you're wondering, could this possibly be true? He's saying, go talk to them. They're in our city. They've seen him. They've held him. Talk to them. And so it's a powerful two-pronged defense of his gospel message. The dual witness of the eyewitnesses and of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. So that's what I want us to focus on. And we're going to look at three passages. The first is Psalm 16, written by King David a thousand years before Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And we catch up with Psalm 16 in the very first sermon given by Peter, the one who denied him in front of a little servant girl around the fire on Friday night. Now he's standing in broad daylight saying, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. So in Acts chapter 2, we pick up this sermon. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. By God's what? Deliberate plan. And so in other words, this was an accident, his death. This wasn't some kind of twist of fate, like what in the world happened? God is going, oh my word, this is not. No, this is his plan, his deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Just because it was God's plan doesn't mean you're not guilty and responsible for your actions. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now he starts quoting Psalm 16, which was written by King David. David said about him, about this coming Messiah, this king, this savior, his, his far-off son, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Fellow Israelites, this is now... Peter talking, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died, was buried, and his tomb is here to this day, right here in Jerusalem. But he was a prophet. That is, David was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. He's referencing 2 Samuel 7, where God promises David that he's going to have one of his sons become a king who sets up an eternal kingdom and he'll reign over this kingdom forever. That's what he's talking about. Seeing what was to come, verse 31, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. That's what Peter's saying, that David was speaking about the resurrection of the Messiah, of this anointed king, that he was not abandoned to the realm of dead of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. So Psalm 16, Psalm 22, raised on the third day according to the scriptures. David is believing in this promised son. It's the same son that was promised to Abraham, this man who had no children. I'm going to give you a son. And through this son, he is going to bring blessing to all the families of the world. It's the same son that he promised to Eve in Genesis 3.15 after they'd rebelled against God and now are experiencing separation from a holy God and are going to be cast out from his presence. He utters this word of judgment on the serpent who is none other than the devil himself in disguise, if you will. And he says, he says, now here's the deal, serpent. One of Eve's distant sons is going to crush 
your head. He's going to take you out. And in the conflict, you, Satan, will strike his heel. How in the world could we ever know that's an allusion to the cross? But that's exactly what it is. And so from the very beginning, God is working a plan that actually we know Revelation 13 started before even there was a physical universe. And the plan is to bring all things back to their right place through Christ, his life, death, and resurrection for God's glory and for our good. It's this plan. It's this Savior that we're talking about. Psalm 22, another Psalm of David, a thousand years before the crucifixion. And we know Jesus is meditating on Psalm 22 when he goes to the cross because he quotes verse 1 on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? The psalm goes on, verse 16, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me, speaking of the enemies that were there right around the cross. They, listen to this, they pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. You can't make this stuff up. A thousand years. This is exactly what the New Testament writers tell us that happens around the cross and how his hands and feet were nailed to the cross and how the Roman soldiers gambled for his clothes. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. And then there's this third scripture, Isaiah 53. We were meditating on this Friday night, Good Friday. Again, listen to the words of crucifixion and suffering and the words of exaltation and resurrection from the Old Testament, hundreds of years before. Isaiah writes, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Now, when, when the when the prophets would write, a lot of times they wrote in the past tense. It's called a prophetic future in the past tense where they're so certain it's going to happen, they're writing as if it has already happened, right? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the Lord's, what? will to crush him. This was God's plan all along and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offering and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he has suffered, he'll be raised up, right? He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. And so here's what Paul says, back to 1 Corinthians 15 where we started. If Jesus, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we don't have any hope. We don't have a message. We've made God a liar when we're saying he raised up Jesus and he didn't. And he says we're to be pitied. And he says we're the biggest of fools because we've pinned our hopes on a hoax. He isn't who he said he is. He didn't do what he said he was going to do. And so we don't have any hope for forgiveness. We don't have any answer to what do we do with guilt. We have no peace. We have no 
hope in the face of death. The people who've died, he says they're lost. And he says, if it's true, then it, it, then what we ought to do is just, we ought to just party hard and get drunk. We ought to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And that's all there is. And the resurrection and the truth of the resurrection tells us, no, that's not all there is. This life, your body that is breaking down, trust me, young people, it will. <laughs> this broken, twisted world, this is not all there is because of Christ. Because of Christ. So Paul says he did rise just as God planned. We've seen it. And the Old Testament scriptures have been speaking about it from the very beginning. In an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, Sting last year said this, I was raised Catholic and I've been thinking about death since I was a kid. I get a kind of spiritual vertigo. I was brought up in a religious background with ideas of eternity and eternal torment and eternal heaven. I became obsessed with it, maybe morbid about it. How does Sting deal with it? Not humor. He's not looking for a freezer. Here's what he says. I, I turn every day regularly to a psychedelic drug. I think it's a way of rehearsing the feeling of being dead. Every time I have to work up the courage to do it, you basically face your mortality, and it's as if you are dead out of time. Most people die in total panic, terror. I think there's another way we're supposed to die. There must be a way to die peacefully and welcoming. And Jesus says there is another way. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And don't miss the truth of the resurrection is not just the certain hope of what happens when we die, but the certain hope of what we gain today, abundant life, a reason for living, freed up from the guilt of the things that we've done and said and not done and said that we should have, that haunt us, that we're freed to forgive. We're filled with his love and his grace and his wisdom and his truth so that we can find life as we give our life away, just like Christ who said, my life for yours on the cross, my life from yours. Rick Warren, the pastor of Saddleback, the author of The Purpose Driven Life, with his wife Kay went through just this unbelievable hard thing. It was the loss of their 27-year-old son who took his life after this long battle with mental illness and depression. And a year in, he, he was talking about it. He said, people have been asking me this last year, how are you doing it? How are you, getting, how are you moving forward with all your pain? And he says, I, I keep coming back to Easter. That's how I'm doing it, Easter. And he went on to explain, when, when we think about Easter, from Friday, his crucifixion, to Sunday, his resurrection, uh, those are three different kinds of days, the pain and the suffering and agony. That's Friday. 
the confusion, the doubts, the misery. That, that's Saturday. And then there's the victory and the joy and the hope of Sunday. And he goes on to say, every one of us in our lives repeatedly will face those Fridays, Saturdays and be chasing for how do I get to a Sunday? And when you get there, he says, you'll be forced to ask these questions. First, what do I do in my days of pain? Second, how do I get through my days of doubt and confusion? And three, how do I get to the days of joy and victory? The answer, he says, is Easter. It's Easter. So I wonder what day it is for you today, this Easter 2017. Is it a Friday? Pain and suffering? Is it just, just a crazy chaos of confusion and doubt? A Saturday? And what, what, what is it that you're chasing? What are you banking on? What are you pinning your hopes on or in to get you to that Sunday that you and I were made for? Joy and hope and victory and purpose and satisfaction and peace and fullness. What are you chasing? Paul says to his friends, Hey, this is the message that I received. I didn't make this up. And I preached it to you, and you've received it. That is, you are trusting in it. And this Easter, the text asks us that question. Have you received this is good news for you personally? Now, like, that's a good idea. Yeah, I want to think. No, for you, have you received it? Is this of first importance? Are you standing on the truth of God's love for you in Christ? Are, are, is your heart, again, resting and gripping hard? Or are you losing that in the Fridays and Saturdays of life where you go, I don't know, I don't know. I don't, it doesn't feel like it is. It doesn't appear to be true. Where are you at? It's really important that you also know the, di the difference between the pre preposition. I think they're prepositions. Somebody sort me out afterwards if they're not between for our sins and in our sin. He said, he died according to the scriptures for our sin. And he said, if it's not true that he rose from the dead, then we are in our sin. We have no remedy before a holy God. There's a big difference between believing that Jesus died for my sin and not and still being in my sin as we consider one day standing before a holy God as we consider just today, what do we do with this stuff that we all have? It's broken and twisted, and we can rationalize it, why it's all happened, but at the end of the day, we know we have responsibility for this. What do we do? God gives faith, and he gives faith as we hear the truth of God's word, and you're hearing the truth of God's word, and what the Spirit does is he takes that truth and, and he moves us to a place where we go, I, be, I believe this. And it's not like, how much do I believe it? It's, is all of what you believe, all of it on Christ, that is enough. 
He's enough. He's sufficient. Jesus is raised from the dead, and the Father is saying his payment for you, Mark, for each of us here, it was enough. There were sufficient funds to satisfy my justice. There is an overflow, eternal well of my mercy and grace, and it cannot be exhausted. Have you received? Are you resting? Have you lost your grip? There's a prayer I'm going to pray. And if it resonates with your heart's desire, I want to invite you to pray this prayer and begin a life of following Christ. Dear God, I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. Thank you for raising him up to give me life. My trust is all on Jesus. Help me to live for you and to love like you. Let's pray. Father God, we rejoice again in that which is the center of our faith where you sent your son and Lord Jesus, you gave up your life that we might find life. Strengthen us to believe, to find hope and healing and strength and power and purpose. And Lord, would you give faith to those who pray to you now? Dear God, I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me in the quietness of your own heart. Thank you for raising him up to give me life. My trust is all on Jesus. Help me to live for you in a love like you.